April 14th marks 91 years since the birth of the legendary National Geographic photographer Jim Blair. I'm pleased to bring this encore episode back from a year ago. Jim died soon after the interview on April 24th of 2021. This is one of my favorite episodes and a very personal one. Jim lived his life with his eyes and heart wide open. I hope you enjoy this powerfully moving episode. From the heart of Vermont, this podcast is brought to you by Capital City Concerts, a concert series which assembles exceptional musicians from across the globe in remarkable live performances in an intimate venue. Learn more at capitalcityconcerts.org. When I got up from that kneeling position, I was aware that that I had changed, that I was uh, no longer a kid with a camera, that I had a purpose in life, that my purpose in life was to photograph, that I was going to be a photographer, that I was a photographer. And so I have been all the rest of my life and my career. And I still am. I look at the world from the perspective of recording it. My name is Karen Kevra, and you're listening to Muse Mentors, a podcast about artists and their mentors. Some people say it's not what you know, but who you know. I say it's how you know them. Okay. Stop for a moment and ponder this question. What would be your dream job? How many of us have said they wish they could be a photographer for National Geographic? Well, that's exactly what my guest James Pease Blair did. I don't know how else to say it. Jim Blair is a big deal. Over his career, he covered every continent except Antarctica, and his images include the kind of nature shots you cannot take your eyes off of and historical figures, world leaders, and regular people too, plus man-made and environmental disasters. He has a boatload of awards and his photographs are included in the collections at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., the Art Institute of Chicago, the Cleveland Museum of Art, and the Carnegie Museum of Art in his hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I came to know photographer Jim Blair through his extraordinary energetic wife, Elise, a devoted amateur flutist who became my student back in 2016. Jim and Elise Blair are an octogenarian power couple. They live a few miles north of me in the tiny college town of Middlebury, Vermont, in a beautiful and welcoming yellow clabbered 1816 house. The Blairs have a wide and warm circle of friends, and we all feel incredibly lucky when we get to revel in an artistic sensibility of beauty that manifests itself in so many ways in their world. Their generosity of spirit is everywhere when they serve abundant feasts, share music, and invite us to walk with them in their breathtaking, colorful, and fragrant flower gardens. But my first encounter with Jim Blair actually happened decades ago without my even knowing it. And yours probably did too. When I was growing up in the 70s, there was one reliably great mail day a month. And that was the day that the National Geographic magazine landed in our mailbox. 
the brown paper sleeve it came wrapped in was torn off well before I reached the front door. I love to pour over the pictures. What an incredible travel log it was. Sitting there in my suburban New Jersey 60s style sunken living room, I was transported to another world. I love the amazing plants and wildlife and the jaw-dropping landscapes, but what moved me most, even as a kid, were the faces. Turns out quite a few of those photos were by Jim Blair, and they were featured on the covers and inside of that venerable journal from 1962 until 1994 when he retired. His iconic photos, and I really mean iconic, include heart-wrenching photos from JFK's funeral. A picture of Martin Luther King, his arm raised high as he makes his legendary speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. There's the unforgettable shot of the Trooping of the Color, the annual birthday celebration for the Queen, where Jim captured a most amazing image, the one troop member in a long line who face-planted at attention in the June heat. And who can forget the hair-raising image of the Bangladeshi boy somersaulting into a body of water teeming with horned cattle? Jim has lived life fully and well. As a photographer, he was obviously well-trained with formidable technique and an artist's eye, but I have to believe it's his temperament that sets him apart. He's wide-eyed, open-hearted, patient, curious, feisty, and warm. And even in the face of a terrible lung disease that has reduced him to 35% breathing capacity, You can hear his supplemental oxygen purring away in the background of our interview. He manages to find delight at nearly every turn. Jim's 90th birthday is April 14th, 2021. We talked about that in his early life when we spoke. I'm an old guy. I'll be 90 on the 14th of April. I always like to say that because it's the day before the taxes are due. So in my present condition, the old expression of death and taxes, I'm afraid (laughs) is becoming something of a reality. Mm. I'm an only child. I was raised by two loving parents. My father was a professor of economics at the University of Pittsburgh, and my mother was a stay-at-home housekeeper, but she had in her life as a single person been a uh, one-room schoolhouse teacher, and I think she taught in Vermont, actually. In 1929, she married my father, Jacob Jackson Blair, uh, who was the son of a steel worker in Middletown, Ohio. Steel, the nation builder, plays the leading role in the development of America by supplying transportation essential to development and use of our great natural resources. Don't the sons of steel workers often end up as steel workers themselves? Was he trying to kind of bust out of that? I think that's a very good question. The nice thing about America 
the really great thing about America is you could escape that. And that was one of the freedoms that was promised and encouraged. And so if you showed some promise in school uh, in those days, you could get scholarships. And my father did not become a steel worker. He became an arbitrator. He became a guy who negotiated contracts with the steel mill companies and unions to set wages and uh, employment policies. So there you are, a young boy being raised by your educated parents in the 1930s. Was there a moment when you knew you wanted to become a photographer? There was, and it was extraordinary. I was quite young. I was given a copy of the book by Edward Weston called My Camera on Point Lobos, which showed his work. And I understood from that moment on that photography was something that could be very beautiful and worth pursuing. Who gave you a copy of that book? There was a guest who came to my father and mother for dinner one night, and he brought along uh, a copy. But what was it that turned you on to photography prior to that? I had some little interest as a, as a Boy Scout, as a Cub Scout. One day, the Scoutmaster took us all up in a group. To, uh, he was an amateur photographer. Took us into his little dark room that he made and showed us how you made a print and when he took a sheet of paper, exposed it to the light coming through the negative, and put it in the developer, and suddenly you could see an image forming on that piece of paper. I was hooked. I thought that was magic. I was really interested in photography when I was in high school. Uh, so interested that I uh, was shot for the newspaper, uh, the yearbook that we had at Mount Lebanon High School in Pittsburgh. And uh, when I graduated and went on to college, my first year was spent at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, and that didn't work out. I was not cut out to be an engineer. Uh, I was uh, too uh, interested in photography. And I came back and looked up where you could go to study photography. It turned out to be the only place in the nation, the Institute of Design in Chicago, Illinois. Chicago, Chicago, that title in town. I graduated in 1954. Uh, I also had a commission in the United States Navy. But in those four years in college, I learned, I think, quite a lot about photography and a lot about myself. It sounds as if there really was only one place to study photography in the 50s and you went there, you went to Chicago, and I'm wondering if there was a particular experience that you had there that really shaped you. Yeah, two things. Um, I, I studied at the Institute of Design in Chicago from 1950 to 1954. It was a wonderful experience uh, because of two men. Uh, they were Harry Callahan and Aaron Siskin. They were both doing great work in their own photography, and they were becoming recognized for their photography. I was taught 
both the technical side of photography and the aesthetic side of photography. And with Aaron Siskin, the social side of photography. How could photography be of some use? The FSA, or the Farm Security Administration, may not be what you assume it is. It was a New Deal agency created in 1937 to combat rural poverty during the Great Depression. But the program had its critics. Some accused it of being an experiment in collectivizing agriculture, bringing farmers together to work on large government-owned farms using modern techniques, but under the supervision of experts. Over here in the government camp, that's where we get our government stamps, over in that little rag castle. The FSA is perhaps best remembered for its highly influential photography program. These thousands of photographs poignantly portrayed the challenges of rural poverty. The guy who ran it was Roy Stryker. Stryker was Jim Blair's most important mentor. In 1950, Stryker started the Pittsburgh Photographic Library, which in many ways was similar to the FSA photographic project. A group of important photographers, which included a young Jim Blair, set about to record the revitalization of a problematic city that was plagued with epic industrial pollution and poverty and was known to have a pawn shop on every corner. I was compelled by the photographs that you took in Pittsburgh of the drunk woman, as you call it, back when you were still studying photography. Tell us about that. I shall indeed. Assignment that I had from Roy Stryker at the University of Pittsburgh and his Pittsburgh Photographic Library was to simply roam around the city and take pictures. Pittsburgh town is a smoky old town, Pittsburgh. Whatever he thought uh, I, I could see that was interesting to me. And, and indeed, I'd spent my life growing up in Mount Lebanon in the suburbs. Uh, I hadn't been into the city so much. So uh, I took myself up to the near north side of Pittsburgh, across the bridges. Pittsburgh is bisected by two rivers, the Ohio and the Mahongahela. And on the other side of the river, on the north side, there's an old part of town, run down, corner grocery stores boarding houses, uh, things like that. And I'm walking along, a young man with a camera, Leica, as it turns out, uh, Leica 3C, and uh, I am uh, looking for things to photograph. What strikes my fancy as a young, budding photographer? And I'm walking along, and walking along, and I look to my right, and there's a woman uh, sitting in a doorway with a bottle, bottle up to her lips, and it's... Uh, a bottle of alcohol. And I think to myself, well, that's probably a good photograph. So I go, and I turn my camera, and I go click. And I walk on to the end of the, end of the corner, and I have an epiphany, a real epiphany. I have suddenly understood that I'd done something wrong. I stole a picture from, from this woman, that I should not do that, that that was not a nice thing to do. That was, a, in fact, a really bad thing to do. Was she aware that you had taken her picture? She looked up and she saw me making a photograph. 
and saw me walk away. So I, I looked down at my camera, and I was on frame 22 of 36 exposures. I stripped out that roll of film, put in a fresh roll, and turned around with all the purpose of a young man, came back to her, knelt down in front of her, and proceeded to apologize. And I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, I took your picture and I went away. May I stay here and photograph you? And she said, sure, honey. She was pretty far gone. What did you notice about her? Do you have a sense of her age? She's a middle-aged lady wearing a black dress, like widow's weeds. She had the most compelling eyes. And that's what I noticed about her. And she looked at me, and she looked into my soul, and I stayed there for an uncountable amount of time. Maybe it was an hour, maybe it was two hours, maybe it was 15 minutes, I don't know. It was as long as it took for me to go through an entire roll of 36 exposures. And what's going on in your head? Are you feeling uncomfortable? Are you feeling engaged or connected to her? She opened up to me. She said what she wanted to say about her life. What did she say? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't How do I know? Photographers, we don't necessarily engage that side of our brain because we're busy looking through the back of the camera at the image that we're making. And, and you don't kind of remember what the president said or what the, the drunk woman said. You only remember that you're making photographs. And you get a photograph that is important either to you or maybe to the world if you're really concentrating on the moment. But you know, I, I have to stop you because you, you just use the phrase making a photograph. You did not say taking a photograph. So I wondered if maybe that first photograph of the drunk woman that you walked away from was taking a photograph, and when you came back, then you were making photographs. That's a very good distinction, Karen. So yes, I think uh, that's the distinction. I knelt there, I made photographs, I clicked the shutter 36 times over the course of an hour, at the moment where it seemed to me she, her expression on her face was important to record. Do you think that she was playing with the camera? Was she perhaps enjoying this in some way? Was she hamming it up? What, what was your reading of her? Yeah. I've got a camera stuck in this woman's face for an hour. You think, well, what's her reaction? Well, her reaction, I think she was, she was responding to me rather than to, to the camera. And most of all, she was responding to my receptivity. I was being receptive to what she had to say about herself. And what that was, I lost in the midst of time, but the pictures are as fresh as the moment I took them. And that's the interesting thing to me. One of the things that's been uh, compelling for me, looking at your photographs, I am at least trying to see them through your eyes and then going back to you know, the possible response of this woman, I imagine that she is someone who wasn't getting much attention from men at this stage in her life, not to mention a young, attractive, open-hearted man like uh, you. Huh, that's interesting. 
That's very interesting. I think that's the hallmark of a photographer. We're there to record for history the reality of uh, the moment. Oftentimes that becomes something very special. You have described this moment of photographing the drunken woman as a, a seminal moment for you as a photographer. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. When I got up from that kneeling position, I was aware that, that I had changed, that I was uh, no longer a kid with a camera. I was no longer unanchored uh, piece of flotsam in the society, that I had a purpose in life, that my purpose in life was to photograph, that I was going to be a photographer, that I was a photographer. And so I have been all the rest of my life and my career. And I still am. I look at the world from um, the perspective of recording it. I'll be back with my guest Jim Blair in a moment to continue talking about his mentor, Roy Stryker. Capital City Concerts offers its final concert of the season on May 21st, a large ensemble program called Oh for the Love of Bach, Arias, Sonatas, and Brandenburg Concerto No. 5. In-person and remote tickets are available at capitalcityconcerts.org. We all look to find a mentor. Uh, Roy Stryker was, uh, for the brief time that I knew him, uh, my mentor. I can say that with uh, absoluteness. I had high regard for him, as everybody in the world of photography did, because he had done something absolutely unique. He'd given the photographers of the 1930s a chance to record the conditions abroad in the land during the 1930s. And Without Roy Stryker, that period of time would have been recorded only in words or perhaps snapshots. But it would not have been a concerted effort to record what was going on in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma or in the poverty-stricken areas of Cleveland or Chicago, Kansas City, or wherever. And Stryker provided that to a group of wonderful photographers whose names still ring in the history of photography. Stryker was extremely important to me as a, as a mentor. He was so important to me, I would say he almost uh, was an additional father. Roy E. Stryker showed me the way. And he showed me more than Harry Callahan, who also in his own way showed me the way. And Aaron Siskin showed me the way. I was very fortunate to have three mentors, four mentors if you count my dad, and my mother, of course, in my life. They gave me a pathway that included the following interesting concepts. One, work was good. Work was important. Work was something that you did because that was why you were alive. Photography was important, and I got that impression both. My own photography, the vision that I had, was important. It strikes me that photography especially the kind of photography that you were doing, almost uh, photography of, of activism. In fact, I was thinking about the series of photographs in black neighborhoods in Chicago and Pittsburgh. That's right. There must have been some reticence on the part 
of your subjects. You know, again, I keep circling back to this. You know, having a white, a young white guy yeah, right, camera yeah, yeah, enter their world. Yeah, that's right. And isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You know, it was a different era. Perhaps it was me. Perhaps it was uh, my uh, openness and straightforwardness. But I had no problem with the black community. They were people who were kind and generous to me as an individual. In one particular family, the family of Armister Hatton is his name, and his wife and two little twin girls gave me an opportunity to photograph in a, an old house uh, where they're living on the second floor. Uh, but that house had been condemned. It was going to be torn down, down for uh, Chicago's urban renewal. And urban removal is what the black community said at the time. I was, of course, very sympathetic. I was sympathetic to the black uh, situation, and the black situation was one where they were put down, uh, they were dismissed, they were uh, kept in their place, quote unquote. I didn't think that way. My father didn't teach me to think that way. Uh, my mother didn't, and, and certainly Roy Stryker didn't. So I, I went saying to them and to myself, we're all the same. I respect you. I hope you respect me, and may I come and photograph you? And Mr. and Mrs. Armister Hatton gave me a chance to photograph for one moment, one sixtieth of a second, a picture that has stayed with me all my life, a picture of little girl, their little daughter, reaching up to give her mother a hug. It's photographed against the light. It was a photographic challenge. I rose to it. I turned my like to that little girl and her mother, and in an instant I had a photograph that I remember all these years. It's not been published, but it's in my heart, and it's a picture of love. It's a picture of glorious love between her daughter and her mother. And the expression on the mother's face is just, and she was a beautiful woman, absolutely beautiful woman. And the little girl was so sweet, and she looks up at her mother with a sparkle in her eyes. And there's nothing but pure love in that photograph. It's not the picture that's great, it's the moment that's great. And if that moment comes through in the photograph, then perhaps you can say it's a successful photograph. I was still a freelancer in 1961, walk into the offices of the Geographic and uh, go up to the second floor, go into the office of James Godbold, the director of photography, at his request and get an assignment to go on the Calypso for the foreseeable future. It was maybe three months. I said, yes, sir, and uh, walked out with a ticket to Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> that sounds like a great gig. Which is a pretty good gig. And you have to understand what history this is. What the Calypso was doing was very, very specific and very, very interesting. The Calypso was going 
out 100 kilometers into the Atlantic Ocean to the east and then back and north 100 kilometers and out into the Atlantic Ocean for 100 kilometers east and back and so on and so forth all the way down the coast of South America. They were taking a drag of the sea bottom every four hours and bringing up the results in this fishing net. There were scientists aboard who would pick out the things they thought were interesting for future investigation. What kinds of things were they finding? Wee, little squeedy, squeedy fishes and, and, and objects that had never been recovered before. It was, it was brand new science, and it was the science of true investigation. This must have been an incredibly well-equipped ship and probably pretty large. Could you describe it for us? The ship is a retired World War II wooden minesweeper from the United States Navy. And it wasn't very long, about 150 feet long. I had a cabin, not very big, a little place to tuck my head in at night. And for the rest of it, I was on the deck in the stern for most of the day, photographing these objects that the scientists would point out were interesting to them and quickly as I could before they lost their colors or wilted uh, and died. What he was doing, and herein lies the really interesting part, the Europeans had said, we think that this earth is formed with islands of land that have moved around. And the Americans said, no, that's crazy. That's impossible. I mean, you know, clearly the continents have been here forever, and, and, and it's the way it is. Are you talking about plate tectonics? I am. Ah. And you didn't know about it until you learned it in school? Yeah. And I didn't know about it until I learned it from Jacques Cousteau. Wow. I was in at the beginning of even the consideration of the possibility that there would be something beyond human understanding in 1961 of the idea that there were plates that moved about on the surface of the earth that created the continents. How about that for a way to get into the National Geographic Society, huh? <laughs> Remarkable. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And, and Jacques Cousteau was as remarkable a character as he was, he was in person as he was later on television, I can attest. What did the crew have for lunch when you were on board the Calypso? Ah, what do you think? <laughs> I'm going to go with squiggly things. Yeah, yeah, yeah we, uh, we had lunch every day at noontime. Everything would cease. The lunch hour was an established French tradition. Ah, so was, was it a long, long drawn out lunch with different courses? We two hours and a cheese platter. Cheating, exactly. Really? Was, yeah, absolutely. How many people would gather around for that? The crew would gather around together and there would be, I think there were maybe, uh, maybe 20 people in the crew. Falco, various famous dive master, was the right hand of Cousteau. Cousteau and his wife. His wife was an extremely important part of the team. Anyway, we had wine, and on the occasion we had, we had mostly white wine because we had mostly fish. But that would happen. The last dredge of the morning, the last dredge would come up, and uh, the scientists would come out from the, the starboard side, and from the port side of the boat would come the chef. And it was the one dredge that, that day where the chef took precedence over the scientists. <laughs> That's a joke that the, I've always told, and he got to choose 
first as to what would be either cooked or what would be uh, put into alcohol for further, <laughs> further observation. <laughs> so, oh, and we had some, wonderful. We had some very good meals. I assume this was a French chef? Oh, of course. When we first spoke about having you as my guest on Muse Mentors, you mentioned three photographs you wanted to most focus on. We've come to the final one. Would you describe it for us? A young girl and her brother sitting on a bench surrounded by wild garden. And the only thing in the garden that's unusual is there's a clothesline, and on that clothesline is the daughter's doll. It's been hung up there to dry, I gather. Must have had her hair washed or something. It makes it an unusual picture, and a picture that's a little strange, and was a double truck in the National Geographic magazine, story on the Volga River. So you think, why should that be? How can the Geographic spend all that money to print two pages and send them out around the world of my picture of these two little kids? Because this is a picture that for me is very special because it is a picture of pure love, unadulterated love that the brother is showing for his sister. She is in some kind of turmoil, but he was looking, you can tell by position of his head, looking at her. We see only the back of his head. You don't see anything but the gesture. Position of concern that he's showing for his sister. That's all there is in this picture. In a little green grass and a doll hanging from a clothesline. It's an almost empty photograph. But I would venture to say it's full of love that there is no space left. Love permeates this photograph. Love inhabits this photograph. Love flows off the page, and I hope, into your heart. Just because of the way he's got his head tilted, and because of the moment that I snapped the shutter. And this is the last best photograph I think I've ever made, because it does show love. I'm more than just an old guy who took a lot of pictures over a long period of time. I really have a place in history. I'm one of 50 photographers ever to work on the staff of National Geographic. Uh, and so I've been with Jacques Cousteau. I've been down in the bowels of the earth at a gold mine, 5,500 feet below the surface of the earth. I have been in a specially equipped DC-8 at 48,000 feet looking at the eclipse uh, from almost above the, the atmosphere. And I saw the shadow creep across the surface of the Earth from 48,000 feet. And I showed the world how tenuous our position is on this surface. Uh, this area we inhabit, which is from, from the ground maybe about 15 feet 
fine artist most days, unless you, you know, you got a longer ladder and you're climbing up to paint your house. But between babies and cooking dinner and going to church and getting ready to die, all those years and all those days, it's generally between about four and six feet that you inhabit of the Earth's surface. And we've imperiled that. And that's a great tragedy. So there you are, sitting there. You have nothing to do right now except listen to me, and I'll take every <laughs> goddamn possible advantage of it I can. I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me more than anybody. And I am and so, so desirous of grabbing the brass ring as you go around, right? If you don't grab the brass ring as you go around, take it off, uh, it gives you a chance to go around again. You get to stay on the carousel. You know that story, don't you? Uh, you got on a merry-go-round when you were a little kid, and you reached out, and there was a, a brass ring that was just within reach if you sat on the outside of the, of the merry-go-round. And you could reach out, and grab that ring, you got a free ride. And we all like free rides on merry-go-rounds, right? I had that happen to me. I woke up with a start in the middle of the night, uh, maybe three weeks ago, and I was given that choice. I could grab the brass ring, or I could lie back down. And I put my feet over the edge of the bed very carefully. I could see it. I could see the whole earth spinning below me. And I thought, in so much as I was thinking, that I was dreaming, and I was thinking that I was, I was fully competent and fully awake, and I see this in my head right now. I could choose. And I put my toe down, and I hit the ground, and I got, went to the bathroom. <laughs> and when I came back, I said, ah, well, that's nice to be alive. No matter how hard it is, my future is not easy. But I have a future, and I'm going to take that future and run with it as long as I can. <laughs> Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. If you have thoughts about this or any other News Mentors episodes, I welcome your reactions. You can leave a review and comments at Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you listen, or send me a message through the News Mentors website. I promise to respond. Please consider supporting us at newsmentors.com. Until next time, set aside some time to check out some archival National Geographic photos online. And remember how it felt to see those through the eyes of your childhood.